This episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by Seton Home Study School, an accredited Catholic school with over 15,000 students nationwide. To find out if Seton Home Study could be right for your family, go to seatonhome.org. Hey everybody, welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation, an accredited Catholic conversation with over two participants, no, actually singularly two participants. Never mind, that whole thing was... Um, hey everybody, welcome to the Pillar Podcast. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. Ed, aloha. Hi, J.D. Hi, how are you? You saw what I was doing there. I saw you. You, you made a valiant effort. Um, I did make a valiant effort. and I It's your willingness to try that I appreciate right. most about you. That's, you know, I... One thing that you uh, don't realize is one of the reasons why the hosting duties on the show are so exhausting is because you're always having to try out new things and put yourself out there and and all of that. Someday, uh, when you next host the show, you'll experience what it's like. But it's, you know, it's a real exercise in self-giving. I I can believe that. But the thing is, I don't trust my own judgment on these things. Sometimes I want to try something new and doesn't work. So, uh, okay. This is like, see, this is like, you're not hosting the show. This is like the husband who says, oh, you just do the dishes so much better than I do, honey. I, I, it's not that I'm not willing to do them. It's just that I don't know how to get those lines on the carpet when I vacuum and you do that so well. Uh, That, that may all be true. But I mean, case in point about (laughs) trying new things and they not always working out. Um, So I noticed when we were doing the show last week, which was the last time I sort of saw your face. Um, in real time, uh, I noticed that you'd had a haircut and got them all cut. Indeed. And I, and I needed a haircut and I was jealous and it spurred me on to go and get my haircut. And unfortunately my local barber, um, his business didn't survive the lockdowns and stuff. So I have for the last year and a half, I guess, been going to my wife's hairstylist. Um, and I mean, she's she's fine. Uh, she she has access and memory of more personal information of mine than I would normally like my my hair cutter to have. And she tries valiantly to make conversation with me and things like that, which you know puts me slightly ill at ease. But uh, anyway, she cuts my hair the way I ask her to, and that's nice. Except she didn't this time. I went in there, and I you know I I, I badly needed a haircut. She said you know sort of the usual whatever. I said yes, please. And I said actually, could we go a little. Shorter. It's, you know, the summer months are here and the weather's turning nice and whatever. She said, okay. And so she sort of did that thing where she grabs your hair and is like, this short? And I said, no, a little shorter. She said, this short? And I said, eh, a little shorter. She This short? And I said, yeah. She, she looked at me and she just shook her head and went, no. And <laughs> proceeded to cut my hair to the length that she thought. Good. Um, That's what she's we, there for. Well, but I mean, yeah. It's, I mean, I again, another aspect of my life is now basically subject to the to the better judgment of veto power of, of a woman, um, which, which probably is, you know, for the good, cause I'm sure it would have been a mistake and I'm glad that she was there to sort of pump the brakes and exercise discretion. But this is why I shouldn't be allowed to hold the show or host the show is because <laughs> I would, I, I would get it in my head as you often do to try something new. But when I tried, it would just, it would just be wrong. It would be and too I, need, short, I huh? need you that JD, you are like my, my barber. I need you there to, to just sort of shake your head and go, no, no, we're not going to do that. I, I, I can see that. why you think that. I, I have a great barber. Um, I have a great barber, and I like going there. And they're really what they're really good at is beard trimming, which is a necessary thing if you have a beard of any length and you want it to look nice. But um, I don't go there. I go there probably every other haircut because Mrs. Flynn has sort of taken up a kind of interest in hair cutting, and uh, and so as a hobby, um, not as a hobby, but I mean she cuts. Are things that you know, tight that you can't afford the nine bucks for a haircut, JD? First of all, I don't know where you're going to get a haircut for nine dollars unless you have a time machine. Second of all, um, no, it's not that. Although I don't mind saving the you know thirty dollars that a haircut costs or whatever it is. Thirty dollars? Yeah. What do you think? What do you think a haircut costs? I I mean, okay, I paid I paid something like nine bucks plus tip when my my guy used to be open before the pandemic. Now it's it's. It's somewhere in the region of 20, but I mean, 30? The average cost, I'm looking this up. The average cost of a men's haircut in the United States right now is $30. That's um, and then if you're gonna Well, tip, I'm also getting a bargain, apparently. Yeah, well, okay. Anyway, I probably go every other time. Um, Mrs. Flynn um, it cuts the kid's hair, and so she cuts mine. And, and what's good about that? The only point is what's good about that is that I don't have to, I just sit down and say, do what you like. And then she sits down and does what she likes. And since she's the one who looks at it or the only one who looks at it, whose opinion I care about, I, um, I find that that's a very fruitful approach. I, I admire you and I admire (laughs) Mrs. Flynn and I admire your relationship. I admire your marriage that, that requires an incredible level of mutual trust. 
Um, well, I don't care in the slightest what my hair looks like, and Mrs. Flynn has to look at it. I mean, the I, only reason I even have hair, honestly, the only reason I care in the slightest about having hair, so much of my life, people who don't like the banter are not going to like this episode, but so much of the, the choices in my life, and I think this is probably true for most husbands, are about what I might do that would be impressive to my wife. I've been married almost 20 years. You have to think a lot about, like, could I still be impressive to my wife? And um, so many of the choices that I make are sort of like, you know, will Mrs. Flynn think uh, that I look awesome in this shirt or whatever. So I might as well have it. I don't know that I've ever thought that, but you get the point. I like to impress my wife. So I might as well have the haircut that my wife thinks is good. Uh, and if she enough. doesn't think it's good, she has no one to blame but herself. I, I can't remember the last time, if ever I impressed my wife. Um, <laughs> I, you should try for her sake. No, I, for I, yours, I used actually. to try all the time, but I mean, you know, now, I'm, don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not setting out to vex her and I don't proceed with a reckless disregard. Um, for what she thinks, but I'm, I, my my aims are more modest than trying to impress her. I just like to not annoy her. Oh, um, and you know, I, but again, I if if I tried to let my wife, um, cut my hair, the layers of potential emotional tension would be enormous. There's the if she gets it wrong, am I going to be annoyed? Or if she gets it wrong, is she going to be annoyed that she got it wrong? But then take it out on me because she's looking at me. As it's happened, like, no, it's, oh, it, no. I'm really sorry no. to hear that. I, I know. It's it, I, it, it's this kind of... Um, Here's what we're going to do, Ed. It's the 3D well, relational chest that, you know, keeps a marriage young. I don't want to just, I, I don't want to hear about this just from you. So what we're going to do while we're here on the show right now is I'm, I'm going to call Mrs. Condon. Right here, no, right now. Don't, on the don't show. do that. The phone no, don't is do ringing. that. Don't do that. Don't do that. She will be. She will be very annoyed. Don't do not. Do not do that. Hello, Mrs. Do not Condon. Do... <laughs> hey, this is JD. How are you? No, hang up. Listen, no. Mrs. Condon. I am recording with Ed right now our podcast, and the way that this is working is I'm calling you while we're recording our podcast, and Ed can hear you, and I can hear you, but you can't hear Ed, uh, and Ed can hear me. Does that make sense to, to you? Oh no, she hung up. <laughs> She didn't care for that at all. Yeah. Well, I'm going to be hearing about that for the next month. Thank you. All right. Let's talk about the church, shall we? Yes, let's. Okay. Uh, and <laughs> I want to start. Um, I want to start with something serious. So obviously, I led into it very well. But uh, I want to start and just talk for the next 15 minutes or so about the state of the church in the country of Nigeria, because we have been covering this week um, the situation of the church in Nigeria and. Um, and I want to um, I want to sort of flesh out the situation of Christians who are persecuted in Nigeria because it's so um, it's so profound and it's so complex and I've been very grateful that we've been able to cover it this week. But violence is intensifying in Nigeria in all kinds of ways, and um, I, I don't even think we'll do justice to the sort of multi-layered, multi-tiered factors that are contributing to uh, violence against Christians in Nigeria, especially in Nigeria's middle belt. But it does seem to me worthwhile to talk about it, and and the reason I want to talk about it very honestly is because I think it's good for. Uh, us for Christians, the majority of our audience is in the United States, though not all. I think it's good for us to just understand the reality of Christians in other parts of the world, what they suffer and what they endure. Um, there may be ways, of course, like tangible and temporal and practical ways that we can help, but more than anything, I think it's just important for us to understand what Christians in other parts of the world are experiencing so that we can pray for them, and so that even so that we can pray for very specific and particular things that would be useful in ways in which God can could act that would be, I think, of extraordinary importance in, in, in Nigeria. I just think I just think it is important for us to know with in reality what Christians in other parts of the world experience. And I don't even know why I feel as convicted about that as I do. I, I, I don't want to sort of moralize it. I'm not saying we should know what Christians in the other in the other parts of the world are experiencing so that we don't get so caught up in our own stuff. I mean our own stuff is important to us too. The stuff of our own life are the crosses to which God has called us and the vocations and missions to which God has called us and the life to which God has called us. And so, you know, we shouldn't just think, oh, none of that's important because other people are suffering in different ways or profound ways because we're suffering in precisely the way that God has has, uh, has called us to suffer. Um, but I do think if we know how Christians in other parts of the world are living, we can know how to pray for them and we can know maybe how to be in solidarity with them. And maybe there are ways in which we can help them that haven't even occurred to us. Or there are people who are who listen to the show who are called to help sort of persecuted Christians in other parts of the world in very particular and heroic ways that we haven't even thought about. So I just think it's good for us to just take, to just, because we're members of a body, 
it, by virtue of our baptism to just step back and understand the whole of how that how that body is doing in a certain way. Does that sound fair? Yeah, sure. Okay. I think so. Okay. So what I want to do is basically a kind of a deep dive on the situation of persecuted Christians in the part of Nigeria that's sometimes called the Middle Belt. That's kind of like northern and central, north central Nigeria, um, at farming agricultural Christians, Christians in all many parts of Nigeria. Nigeria, as you know, it is a kind of uh, divided nation. Um, roughly half the people are uh, Christians and half the people are Muslims or maybe... Maybe it's like 45, 45, and then 10% other or something like that. But, um, but you know, the, the Nigeria is effectively divided between Christians and Muslims. And for the most part, the Christians live in the South and the, and the Muslims live in the North. Now, there are Christians living in all parts of the North and there are Muslims living in all parts of the South. But the, the Southern parts of Nigeria are the most, the most densely Christian parts and the Northern parts of Nigeria are the most densely uh, Islamic parts. So the point, to, the, to, the, to the point that there are region states of Nigeria, Nigeria is a country like ours that has states, that there are states in Nigeria whose sort of fundamental state law is effectively Sharia law, is Islamist law and Islamic courts, which follow, um, you know, Islamic moral and cultural and social prescriptions have a big role to play in everybody's life, whether they're, whether they're Muslim or not. So, um, so that's the sort of overall situation. But in the middle, sort of in between deeply Christian Southern Nigerian, deeply um, Islamic Northern Nigeria, you've got the Middle Belt, which is a very fertile part of Nigeria. Like the soil is very fertile. And uh, and so there's a lot of growing going on there um, of crops and whatnot. And so you've got Christian communities who have been there sort of farming for um, a long time. You've also got Muslim areas of the Middle Belt, which, are, which have Muslim sort of farmers. But you've got farming communities which have been there for hundreds and hundreds of years. And, and this is a... This is a um, a part of the world where people are much more attuned to their ancestry for hundreds of, or hundreds of years than, than we are. Um, so I've got these communities which have been sort of in this fertile area for hundreds of years farming. And above that, you've got um, Muslims, and below that, you've got a much more densely Christian area. There are a couple of things going on at the same time that have contributed to violence in the Middle Belt. The most prominent, the one that gets the most sort of headlines is that Northern Nigeria, and especially northeastern Nigeria, has become uh, a place for Islamic terrorist cells who engage in global, um, who have a, who have ideological agendas. That is, they want to see the sort of spread of of militant Islam in sub-Saharan Africa, and particularly in Nigeria, they want to see the spread of the influence of Sharia law, and are very overt about that. But they also engage in global arms trafficking and an unbelievable amount of oil stealing um, in Nigeria, like they. Um, their pipeline. Nigeria is an oil-rich country, and their pipelines were like huge swaths of the uh, of the production is uh, is sort of stolen by Boko Haram and then sold off on the sort of oil, black oil market. So those guys are violent against Christians in the Middle Belt because they'd like to sort of expand their territory there. Then you've got the Fulani herders, who are Muslims who live in who are sort of nomadic Muslims who live in this sort of northern section of sub-Saharan Africa, the near Saharan section of Africa, if you will. The Fulani herders who live in Nigeria and a bunch of a bunch of neighboring states, who are mostly nomadic. They herd cattle. They are Muslim um, for the most part, and they are running into problems right now because their land in northern Nigeria, which was once phenomenal grazing land, think of it as kind of like plains area, is turning into desert, right? The Sahara Desert is moving southward, as you probably know. So their land is turning into desert, and um, they're sort of pushing downward, and that puts pressure on the Christians, and it leads to a lot of tension because basically the Fulani are trying to take a lot of Christian farming land and turn it into grazing land, and often they do that by violence. Then you have those things combining, where Boko Haram hires the Fulani from Nigeria and from elsewhere to perpetrate acts of, of Islamic-based terrorism and where Boko Haram sort of exacerbates this economic tension to reach out to young, increasingly poor Fulani men and say, hey, you should join our terror cell and we'll teach you how to get this land for your family and also we'll teach you how to spread Islam. But but there's there are varying degrees of sort of Islamic commitment in all of that. You know, there are people who are there for the paycheck, people who are there for the land, and people who are there because they're really serious about the Islamic stuff. Then... At the same time, what else do you think you'd have to add if you have this sort of situation where you've got like basically criminal overlords and terrorist overlords blowing stuff up all, all the time and the police basically either paid off or scared? What else do you think would emerge in the same region? Um, well, a refugee crisis, I would imagine. A refugee crisis, tons of internally displaced people. And that means you've got tons of sort of young people who have no jobs and no homes. And some of them would go to camps sort of in southern Nigeria or neighboring countries. But what do you think some of them would do? 
in that in that upper in that area where the police are basically scared out of the area or keep getting shot well, they at would turn to vigilantism yeah, then you've got vigilantism of all kinds you've got criminal gang activity of all like basically like robbery type stuff because you've basically got a lawless area so you've got some people who want to be retributive against the Fulani or against Boko Haram but that doesn't usually work out too well because those guys are pretty well armed um, to the teeth but then you've got people of all sort of ideological backgrounds who become effectively criminal gangs who either become sort of low-level organized crime guys or become just extremely violent cattle rustlers, arms dealers themselves in the middle of, you know, selling arms to the Fulani and to Boko Haram, um, and who perpetrate actually some of the most profound violence because they'll just burn anything down and steal everything and often at the same time committing profound acts of violence and sexual violence and these kinds of things. So you've got these like three things all kind of descending on Nigeria's middle belt all at the same time and leaving the Christians there, you know, in dire straits. And I would presume since the the middle belt is um, an area heavy in agriculture or heavily favored for agriculture, this is probably also disrupting somewhat food production locally. Disrupting food production locally and... um, and so that puts that like exacerbates the economic crisis. But the other thing about farmers is no matter where farmers live, they ha- they live in this sort of situation where they're constantly leveraged. They're like cash poor and land rich, right? They're like they're in this cycle of borrowing from the if you it doesn't matter if you live in Kansas or the middle belt of Nigeria, you're in this cycle of like borrowing from the bank to buy seed and stuff, heavily leveraging your debt, waiting for the crops to grow so you can sell them off at market so you can pay the debt off, maybe taking some of the profit, expanding your land so you can make a little bit more money and, you know, take some, lay in the cut a little bit, take some for your family, but then going through the same sort of debt crop growth cycle. And so if at any point um, a bunch of herders come and basically take your land by force, you're not only left without any land, but what else are you left with? Well, a debt crippling debt right so the people who suffer the violence end up themselves sort of suffer, sort of affected by this like profound and crippling debt which compounds their problems significantly whether their crops are bor- burned or whether cattle are allowed to trample them or whether their barns are burned before they can get the crops in the ground so it's just a really uh it's a crazy situation but it's interesting to me because often often when we cover it um christians in the united states are like well this is this is um all Islamic terrorism, and much of it is Islamic terrorism, and much of it is terrorism in the with the language of Islam. But it's there's a there are like all these factors sort of coming in at the same time that make kind of a difference. There, we've trained ourselves or been trained to perceive that when we read Boko Haram or you know Islamic State or something like that, we we it, it's easy to sort of say ah it it this goes in that box that I've I, I have that is labeled Islamic terrorism or sort of Sharia law extremism, um, Islamism or whatever it is. And, and I mean, as you say, some of it is that I, I, I think we have, we've, we've in a way made that box too big or we're too quick to put things in it in their entirety. Um, because for obvious reasons, uh, particularly in this country, uh, in the last 20 odd years or so, we have, uh, we have, we have some reasons why, um, Islamic terrorism and sort of fundamentalist Islamism has become a box into which we we put things uh, from a sort of news narrative angle. But uh, you know, we had a story about this I think last week um, about um, a bunch of churches that have been burned and uh, and internecine conflict in in the north eastern regions of India. And yeah. you know, there again, if there's a religious dimension, there there's there's Christianity nationalism, and, yeah. and there's Hindu nationalism and things. Um, but the conflict is the conflict tends to break down much as it does in Nigeria along religious lines. Um, but that's not necessarily to say that all of the actors therein are primarily motivated by religion. Um, and I think that's something that's hard for us sometimes to understand, or at least to intuit that you know a, a conflict can break down mostly or even entirely and even exactly along religious lines but the the tribal aspects the economic aspects the internal political aspects of it uh, can be the actual drivers and feeders of the cycles of violence and and um and conflict and and so i think this is also true in nigeria where as you say there there are genuinely primarily motivated islamic militants at work and that is driving some of the violence, for sure. Others and they have cash. Say, 
and they have cash and that's i mean and but I mean, this is exactly my point also and and you see this in in regions of in uh of regions of sub-saharan africa um not just uh on the west side of africa but uh, certainly in in the in the sort of um middle section and 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 further east that um one way to attract funding for your tribal insurgency your guerrilla campaign against the government your whatever else is to slap the word islamic on it and suddenly you have access to all kinds of international funding um you know there's there's no shortage of cash in the world uh for people who say well we would like to we would like to turn our our revolutionary war into a jihad so could we have some some money and some pickup trucks and some guns please uh so that's that's also a factor in all this and you know i i think the more i learn about the situation in Nigeria and how it's unfolding in the regional politics and the in the and and the tribal conflicts and and all of those aspects is I don't you know there's the temptation to think well if you if you step too far away from the the overarching narrative of Muslim on Christian violence that somehow you might lose people's interest and I think that's 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 something we have to guard against because in the same way that you can attract funding if you are a um if you are marketing your campaign of violence under the heading Islamic State, uh, it's the reverse is true from a far better motivation, which is it's it's sometimes easier to draw attention to a conflict. You say, well, this is a question of Christians being persecuted for being Christian. Right. And even if it's not the case that, for example, a village in the middle belt of Nigeria has 30 guys roll into town on the back of Toyota pickup trucks with Kalashnikovs and machetes and they kill every man, woman and child in the village, steal everything that isn't nailed down and burn the rest. Even if they aren't doing that to an entire village of Christians, just because they're baptized Christians, they're still our brothers and sisters in Christ. They are still being killed and they still have, there's still a moral demand on us to, to care about them, to pray for them, to lose sleep over them and to do whatever it is we can to help them. Yeah. And, and it's, and it's interesting. Your point is, it's there's these things um, these things exist in um in such a complicated web between themselves these the sort of tribal economic and religious motivations exist in such a complicated and real web between themselves so that one can't help but think of oneself if one is um a part of a muslim fulani tribe as being Muslim and therefore as securing for one's the rights of one, like the security of one fa- one's family property, even taken by force, as doing something like for the spread and good of Islam or with the spread and good of, if like the the religious dimension is there because the religious identity of the actors is so much a part of their self understanding, and I think that's something that in the West we can sort of lose too, is because we 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 have the uh, Enlightenment and everything that has come after it has done such um, a, a good job of training us not to think of our national identity as being sort of co or our, or our sort of um, even sort of familial identity, kinship identity as being coterminous with a religious identity um, so that we can't, we don't sort of tie those things into them themselves. You, you disagree. Or even our own personal identity. Or even our own personal identity, right? Into a religious identity. But um, if you talk with Christians in Nigeria who are not sort of, um, Whose philosophic the philosophic roots of, of cult Christian culture there are not sort of framed by and through the Enlightenment in the same way, um, they by modernity or post modernity there's not a disconnect or a disharmony between being Igbo and being Christian or something like that right the, these things go for one, as one example these things sort of go together we are a Christian people um, and um, an expectation that other tribes would be sort of these are Muslim people. And when that's the case, then the religious dimension of, of the conflict does weave its way into things which also have an economic dimension and a social dimension and honestly even a sort of climate dimension because desertification in Nigeria is a real thing that's actually happening and, and, and impacts these things. But we, it's funny because in this country when we talk about these things, yeah, there tends to be this sense that either you say this is a religious conflict period in which the Muslims want to persecute the Christians for being Christians period, or there are people who would say, no, 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 this is solely about climate change and so, or solely about, um, you know, ethnic tension without recognizing the profundity of the degree to which those things are intermixed and interwoven for the self-understanding of people who have not been thoroughly secularized in the way that we have. The other thing about the Nigerian situation that I think is really important is that and the, and which Nigerians have a very difficult time of saying because they 
fear legitimately for retribution from this is the degree to which many government ministers do indeed have funding connections to Boko Haram and the degree to which Boko Haram does want to see and does fund the Fulani advancement. Like if the Fulani want to advance for many, many reasons, and one of which is they need a place to graze their cattle and they feel like they can take by by force the middle belt for the sake of grazing their cattle. The ideologues of Boko Haram do want to see that advance for the possession of their own personal power, but also because of their Islamic sort of, um, their Islamic agenda of, of advancing um, the influence of Sharia over a broader period of place and making sort of a conversion of place in their mind and the degree to which they have effectively done a good job of bankrolling many Nigerian politicians or putting many Nigerian politicians in a place to have unfettered access to corruption such that one of the challenges the Christians face is they just don't have the same kind of political muscle for, they don't have any kind of political muscle for protection and the people who are harming them have all kinds of political muscle to look the other way when they roll into town with Kalishnikovs. I mean, it's all inter, it's all interwoven. The interests of the Fulani, the interests of Boko Haram are interwoven and the, po- the politicians are sort of incentivized often by money to look the other way on both of those. And then that lawlessness is the thing which allows like the third element, the criminal gangs to just crop up and take advantage of both. Uh, that and is use cr- the I mean, language of both. Well, and I mean, the real problem with Nigeria is that it is, I, I don't see how it doesn't become a failed state in the next, few years because what we're seeing and we've seen this in other african nations um, with similar ethno-religious conflicts that split pretty neatly down um not quite a line of latitude or longitude but you know there there is a clear regional disparity in in the country and the country has sort of kept those two halves together by um an ongoing mutually accepted political compromise and mutual cooperation at the level of national politics. But that is breaking down in Nigeria. I mean, we've gotten to the point where in the last um, election cycle, there was, you know, for the first time, the party, the winning party, I think, uh, you know, didn't honor the tradition of you field a a president who is um, Islamic, and then you field a VP candidate who is Christian that you have. Or vice versa. Yeah. Or vice versa that, you know, there's a, the, the, there's there's always a split ticket so that everybody has a seat at the table that, you know, there's, they've done away with that now. And you know, that's, and that's the only way they've made this thing work. Like Nigeria is a country that exists because uh, effectively Nigeria is a country that exists because British colonizers drew some lines on a map and said, you know, we'll merge the Southern Nigeria protectorate and the Northern Nigeria protectorate into sort of one protectorate. And then eventually the people of that protectorate sort of, gained for themselves independence, but independence in the sense of having a nation that is bound, that was bound by British colonial cartography. And so it has always been a challenge for the Nigerians to find sources of national unity and identity among like hundreds of tribes and ethnicities. And then this sort of profound religious split of Christianity and Islam. And that's one of the ways that they've done it is to say, yeah, the Christians and Niger- and and Muslims in Nigeria share power. We have this long custom of a Christian being president or, and a Muslim being vice president or vice versa. And so the break from that last year in the, in the, in the, in the elections really, I don't think can be overstated and raise the question about, I think you're right. The long-term, the longevity of Nigeria. Yeah. No, I don't even think it's long-term. I mean, yeah, I meant to say longevity. It's really terrifying to watch. So for the sake of this podcast, what I find really interesting about all of that that's happening, and we only have a few minutes before the break, but have you followed the the kinds of messaging that's coming from the bishops in the context of all of this? The Nigerian bishops? Yeah. Uh, not perfectly, but I, I've seen some of them. I mean, they, they're doing what you would imagine bishops to do, appeal for peace and call and everything. They, they have become, at least the last time I looked in, um, somewhat more pointed in their concerns about uh, the state of the political situation in Nigeria and the and the effective failure of the government to to intervene and offer any kind of protection for its own citizens. Yeah, they're super critical of the state. They do call for peace, but there are two things that the Nigerian bishops have begun doing, which I find really really fascinating. One is they have basically said, "Look, because it's wrong, but also because of our situation, it is more important now than ever that we get really serious about resolving the significant tribal and ethnic." tension which Ah, exists among christians in nigeria right so well and so this was something that played out a lot during the synodal process in nigeria yeah Yeah. i mean talk about a place where they took the synod the the synod on synodality and all that they took it quite seriously seriously. they took it very seriously and unlike 
the sort of you know joke process that was had in many places in the West, where you had these you know laughably anemic participation rates of less than two percent, some places less than one percent of the local Catholic population. Like in parts of Nigeria, it was like eighteen to twenty-five percent of the Catholics in a diocese were taking oh, part. I think actively. some of the dioceses even said higher than that. Some of the yeah, because basically people were told at mass, "We're doing this after mass, and you need to come." And you know, people still sort of listen to that. Yeah, kind of thing. And you're yeah. absolutely right. As part of the synodal processing that came out of it organically and also then the bishops amplified in their own role, sitting on top of the synodal process was this idea of forging a common understanding of their Christianity and what it is to be the people of God and the people of God in a particular time and place. But that taking um, a, a much bigger role in people's life and not to see themselves fundamentally as a tribal Christian first um, the analog to it would be in this country is to say you're not a, you're not a you know a Catholic Republican or a Catholic Democrat or a Democratic Catholic or a Republican Catholic or a you Hispanic a, Catholic, a Catholic or an Anglo Catholic you're Catholic exactly. first yeah mm-hmm. to see yeah. a person's Christianity their common Christianity as the defining characteristic of who they are as a people to identify first and solely as the people of God and the tensions are so acute you probably remember a couple of years ago I can't remember how long that was but do you remember a couple of years ago there was the appointment of a bishop in Nigeria to a diocese and he was not the tribe of the majority of the Christians. And so the the presbyterate of the diocese basically said, he's not our tribe. This is going to cause, and they they, they put in the language of, he's not our tribe and the people are not going to accept that. And this is going to cause an extraordinary amount of attention because he's not effectively our ethnicity. And so he won't work as a bishop here and we won't accept him. And there was back and forth with the Pope, back and forth, back and forth. You have to accept him. You have to accept him. And eventually he was moved. Um, his name's Peter Ocapali, and he, it was 2012, I just checked, he was 2012, he was appointed bishop of this diocese called Ahira, and he was a consecrated bishop and everything, but the priests and many of the laity said, no, he's not, he's not the right um, ethnicity, he's not the right tribe, we are mostly Mbasi here, and he um, is not, and so um, there was this back and forth and back and forth, and then eventually the Pope, uh, what Ocapali did, what you probably remember, Ed, is he he resigned. He, he wrote a letter to the Pope saying, look, my efforts to be the bishop here, you've asked me to be the bishop here. I've said that I will, but my efforts to be the bishop here are not going anywhere because the people won't accept me. And so it took the Pope a little while to accept his resignation, but eventually he did. He made him the bishop of a new diocese. And then, then he made him a cardinal, which was a really striking symbol of the fact that the Pope himself is pushing back on the division among Christians over ethnic you know, the ethnic division over Christian among Christians in Nigeria, which is fast becoming one of the largest Catholic nations in the world. Um, you know, the nation with one of the largest Catholic populations in the world. Which when um, you consider the Catholicism is actually a small minority of the total population. Right, exactly. It tells you this country is, I, I think Nigeria is predicted to be in the top four or so of global population in the next, I mean, it's just growing and growing. Um, yeah. But the bishops have said over and over exactly as you say, we're so divided there's so much sort of tribalistic division among us that it is impossible for us to be a, be not just protect ourselves against these oncoming slot onslaughts, but be an evangelical pre- presence in this country and be a witness of the transformative power of grace, unless we ourselves are transformed to overcome the kind of tribal tension that we endure. And so the bishops are not just saying, look, we have to sort of be ready for the, the literal wolves at our gates here. Um, they're saying we have to be ready to convert them and therefore we have to overcome these things and we're going to do that by basically bringing them to the altar over and over and over again. But what strikes me about that is the sort of evangelical focus that in the face of this like tripartite violence that I, I'm talking about, it's not just we're going to sort of um, roll up the the, uh, the, the drawbridge. It's um, we have to think about how we're going to be the most effective um, uh, apostles of this place and the most effective evangelizers of this place. And at the same time, and here's where a sort of interesting tension emerges, at the same time, the bishops keep telling the Nigerians of the Middle Belt, but don't be afraid to defend yourselves because the police are not going to, and really encouraging sort of more vigorous self-defense and community organization. They, they, they keep saying, look, the federal government is not coming. The cavalry is not coming over the hill. And so communities have to organize effectively, be willing to recognize that there's a room in the Catholic intellectual tradition and real in real real practical tradition to sort of effectively organize community militias of self-protection. So there's this, like there are these, this double vision of the bishops to both say on the one hand, we're going to overcome our own divisions so that we can be a sign of God's grace and convert our oppressors. And don't be afraid to protect your children and your property and your, and your wife and your, your life. And, and it's, it's interesting encouragement, I think. Yeah. I, and 
it's a very, very hard situation to try and put myself in. I mean, it is so, um, it is so theoretically complicated in terms of the politics and the, the sort of the regional dynamics and everything. And it's so unbelievably stark and simple, which is there are people coming into your town and they are going to kill all the women and children and leave them in the street. I and mean, it's, just, it's a hard violence against them before they kill them. Yeah, it, it, it's yeah. just a very, very hard thing to get your head around. Yeah, that's right. Okay, we are going to talk about some other, another set of things which are a little bit difficult to get our heads around right after a word from our sponsor. And this episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to us by the Seton Home Study School. Seton Home Study School incorporates the Catholic faith into everything they do. That's one of their defining features. They offer uh, all kinds of things. They're an accredited school with more than 15,000 students that helps to provide parents with everything they need to be successful teaching at home. So if your family is thinking about homeschooling and you're not sure that it would work for you, you're not sure that you have the homeschooling gift, Seton Home Study School aims to make it easy. There are detailed daily lesson plans and academic counselors standing by to answer questions. Um, But they do more than that, don't they, Ed? Uh, they do. They do do more than that. They offer all kinds of beginners uh, courses that mean you can take a high school level um, class in theology or patristics or in catechetics uh, just for yourself, just to, you know, to broaden your own horizons. And um, they're, the books and materials that they use uh, to help you do the schooling at home if you want. This, these are things that are used in bricks and mortar schools as well. Like the, the quality of the material is such that, it, you know, it's being used in classrooms as well, that it is, it is that kind of one-stop shop. They are great people. They have a really wonderful, purposeful uh, understanding of the role of the faith in every part of education. I, I love a lot about this. Yeah, and Seton's tuition is a fraction of what other Catholic schools charge and make Catholic education available in parts of the country uh, where um, there aren't Catholic schools, where uh, rural areas perhaps where parishes can't support their own Catholic school or other areas where there are not um, good Catholic schools. Seton is a nonprofit which does everything possible to reduce costs and keep tuition low and affordable so as many families as possible can get an authentic Catholic education and to empower parents, I think, to really embrace the role of being the primary educators of their children. Seton has um, something they'd like to encourage you to check out, their free beginner's guide to Seton. If you go to the homepage, setonhome.org, that's setonhome.org, there's a sign-up form right on the front page, and you can do us a favor. You can check off that you heard about Seton from uh, me and Ed at The Pillar, listening to The Pillar podcast, and you could do that, honestly, even if you don't think you want to learn about Seton, just do us a favor and go there and click and say that you learned about it, setonhome.org, so that, from The Pillar podcast, so that uh, they'll know that we have great interested and engaged listeners and we'd be very grateful for that but in all seriousness watch the videos guys it's interesting it's interesting stuff. they have an eight minute video on the homepage that i do think can really tell you a lot more about what seton does what it offers and uh, why it, your family might be surprised by learning that seton is just right for you so that's seatonhome.org and we're back everybody ed and may i say that your hair is looking especially cut today uh, yes, it is. Thank you. Oh, yeah. Sorry. You told the whole story about getting the haircut. I kind of forgot. I kind of forgot where that story had gone. Yeah, we, we no. <laughs> We're okay, going to move on from the hair. I'm already going to be in trouble about, about the haircut. Let's talk about papal politics, if you don't mind. Uh, it is that. Yeah. Ed's mad at me because he thought we were going to lead with papal politics, and I led with Nigeria, and uh, it was on my it was on my heart, and it was on my judgment, and it's my desk. So we led with Nigeria. Ed's a little bit peeved about that, but what we had planned to talk about was uh, was papal politics, um, and we're going to talk about it now. And uh, and uh, really, the reason we're going to talk about this is because it's that time, it's that time in the cycle of a papacy, Ed, where everywhere you go, people are making lists. Right? It's not. We've been seeing this actually for a couple of years. People are making lists and publishing books about who's papabli and who isn't, who's going to be the next pope, who's going to be Francis II or John Paul III or Benedict Seventeenth or whatever it is. Um, what's going on, my well, I, I, friend? I, we used to have a lot more. That That's kind of what I want to talk about is that that's the weird thing is um, Francis, long may he reign, may he live forever, uh, is still... 86 and you know has has had a, a recent fairly urgent hospital stay so it's you know it's not being morbid or anything to sort of uh, i believe the holy see said that it was planned and yeah the holy I see said he went in to get his nails 
done or something like that. Yeah. And then he came out and said, "No, I, I like I stopped breathing oh, no, in, the, in the ambulance. It was I a real was thing. Sick. I, I, yeah, yeah, I was almost a goner there, man. So yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, the yeah the, the Holy Seat did its usual. No, the Pope uh, the Pope was mildly winded after running a vigorous triathlon. He was fine, um, but no. So it's not you know this isn't about being morbid and sort of putting." Pope Francis on death watch or anything like that because he's not. No, the Pope is eighty six. Yeah, he, the Pope is eighty six. He's you know. Look, the Bishop of my diocese is seventy two, and I don't go anywhere these days without priests or lay chancery staffers saying to me, "Who who do you think we're going to get? Who do you think we're going to get?" He's like, "It's like he's seventy two. We got some time." So it, this is just a game that people like to, a sport that people like to play, and there's some value to it. Well, I guess I, it's not just a sport. I I, I think um, you know the governance of the Universal Church is an important thing, and. You know, we don't know. We don't know. And it's, I do think it's a fool's game to try and predict who a conclave convened at an unknown time in some points in the future will elect. But what I find interesting is we are seeing far less of the sort of listicle book length. Um, here are the guys, you know, that the next Pope, Treaties. Yeah, yeah, that the next Pope will be drawn from. Um, we used to have more of them earlier in Francis's pontificate, and and now it's kind of dried up. And now we're seeing a sort of weird alternative thing happen, which is every time a cardinal sort of has any kind of bump in his prominence, he gets a sort of you know little day in the sun, and then you see a sort of round of disqualifying coverage of him, like you know, well, he seems like a nice guy, but he couldn't possibly be pope because, and then you know, run down the list. And you know, we've seen this happen recently with Cardinal Tagle, who, um, you know, for for a long time, um, before Pope Francis put him in charge of Propaganda Fide in 2019, you know, he was the Asian Pope Francis. That's how he was called. And he was the sort of darling of every meeting of the synods. Um, you know, he was always being photographed, you know, with, surrounded by laughing crowds of teenagers. And, you know, he was, you know, he was so empathetic and he was so there, he was so great. He was the obvious, you know, next, next Francis. And, and now he's been sort of knocked off his perch and, you know, you're seeing all this negative coverage. Uh, mostly to do with the sort of um, turnover of leadership at Caritas International, of which he was president for a long time. But I mean, the, the the thing that got me thinking about this was reading all of this sort of, you know, well, Togley's a good guy, but, you know, he doesn't know how to run anything. He's, you know, he's a poor manager. He's, you know, he's, he's in, picked off all these people over there at Caritas. Yeah, he's, you know, he's a, he's a yeah. good guy. He's a good pastor, but, you know, he's not, you know, he's not governance material. Um, I, I mean, to me, it's fairly transparent that all of these articles are saying he can't be pope but that's the only thing we want to make clear is that he can't be pope everything else is fine because um all of this sort of you know uh, you know very gently phrased but very firm disqualifying criticism of togle is only framed as so he'd make a terrible pope and he's probably out of the running because of all that but nobody says like you understand he's running the biggest and richest Vatican department right now in charge of the propagation of the faith. Like he's right. in charge of evangelization, but nobody seems to think that's a problem for them to say, oh, he's a nice guy, but he, you know, apparently he couldn't run a piss up in a brewery. Um, but that's fine for him to be in charge of propaganda fide. We just want to make it clear we don't think he can be Pope. And so, and you know, you've seen the same thing with um, Cardinal Erdo, uh, Cardinal Peter Erdo of, um, of Budapest, who, you know, Pope Francis had this trip to Hungary, you know, it went down a storm, everybody was, you know, waiting for the sort of, you know, horrible tension between Pope Francis and the Prime Minister Victor Orban, it never materialized, in fact, it was a very successful visit, it was something of a diplomatic mm -hmm. coup, and, you know, you have Cardinal Erdo, who, you know, he, he's a man of some shining qualities, he's a canon lawyer, which is obviously, you know, speaks well of him um but he's also like notoriously media shy like this is not a guy who likes the spotlight he's you know he keeps out of the way he's very vocally i'm i'm with the pope on everything and i've you know the pope was often at odds with some of the lines that the government of hungary are taking and it's my job to sort of thread the needle and bring them together and you know he had this sort of you know coup of a coup of a visit from the pope and like no sooner did the pope get on the plane than you know you started reading these you know, he's like, oh, well, ultra conservative Peter Erdo, whom, you know, every conservative alive or dead would love to see elected pope and you know, right. hard right, right wing. And, you know, even so like, you know, snarky tweets from the Vatican press pool of like, you know, well, Pope Francis took a white fiat around Hungary, but Cardinal Erdo left the... Left Erdo him. was in a limousine you know, or whatever. Not yeah, even a limousine, yeah. just like a black Mercedes. Like, you know, so, you know, yeah. it tells you all you need to know about that right wing fundamentalist. It's Right. And, you know, and again, you saw the same thing with um, Cardinal Zuppi last year, who, you know, Pope Francis installs as 
president of the Italian Bishops' Conference, oh, Bishop in Francis is on mold. He's right on side with all of the sort of social and political situations in Italy. Um, you know, he's 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 thinking the right way about migration. He's thinking the right way about, um, you know, uh, gay rights and all sorts of stuff in the civil sphere. And then he turns around and says Vespers for... Celebrates the extraordinary says, form, Not right? even celebrates the extraordinary form, just celebrates Vespers with like a TLM adjacent group and everyone's like oh well you know this guy nutcase you know you can't have him he's very anti-francis you know it's it, and it's just like literally every cardinal that gets any kind of media bump is you know you could just like start the clock on until they take him down and i find that fascinating because we've now got to the point where we're 10 years into a pontificate the pope is 86 years old you know he's he's not in bad health visibly in any particular way but as we've seen already earlier this year you know he that he's an 86 year old man he can he could take a turn and when we don't actually have anyone who's an obvious senior member of the college at this point, if that makes sense. Like, you know, we had, you know, under under the last two popes, well, under most of the popes in recent and, and even not so recent history, the, the, there have been senior cardinals in the college. You, you could point to four or five guys go, going, going into the conclave and, and not necessarily say, well, this guy's going to be the guy. We had that a little bit. After but the JP2, uh, con- you know, the post JP2 conclave, yeah. I think you could say that definitively. Yeah, you could, but I mean that was an aberration. It's it's not normal to be able to say, well, it's definitely going to be him, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, I mean, but normally you have a clutch of four or five or six cardinals that you could say, well, these guys are kind of in the mix. There's two or three at the top. There's two or three out. You know, guys who are sort of next tier down. And it's not to say that it's always one of those, but you know, people there's a, there's a sort of you know front rank of guys. It's like, well, they're probably setting the tone. Yeah, um, going in, and we we don't have anything like that now. You know, we did Cardinal. You look at the big beasts in the sort of curial jungle, and there aren't any. Cardinal Ladaria is prefect of the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith. Traditionally, you know, a, a but big he's deal. He's not really. He do, he keeps out of a lot of things. You know, he's he's totally below the radar. Like he doesn't say anything in public unless he has to. And when he does say something in public, because he has to, usually someone takes a shot at him and tries to say that the the Jesuit Francis appointee is anti-Francis. Yeah. Um. You know, like they did when he published the the response a dubium on church blessings for same-sex unions that the Pope told him to publish. Everyone right. said, oh, look how anti-Francis he is publishing this right. thing Francis put his name on. Yeah. Um, so he's, you know, he's he's nowhere. Uh, Cardinal Willette was, you know, very, very quiet and probably the last sort of really big, he was certainly the last real holdover from the Benedict era, and he's, he's now retired. Um, Archbishop Prevost, who's replaced him, is, you know, I... I, I, he, you know, he might prove us all wrong, but he doesn't arrive with a reputation of being a sort of, you know, outspoken. Well, and he's not a member of the Sacred College either. So, if right now, it would be extremely so unlikely right now he's not even a cardinal. Right now, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, uh, Cardinal, you at the um, Dicastery for Clergy, right? Again, I hear, I hear lovely things about him, but again, not a guy who, you know, sort of, you know, is is a larger than life figure around Rome, and he's everybody you know, he's not. thought at the at the Francis Resignation Conclave that Scola would be the Pope. Now, Scola wasn't the Pope, and there are a lot of interesting reasons for that. And I think we've talked about before the dynamics that seemed to impact Scola as he went into the conclave. But everybody thought Scola would be the Pope, and if Scola wasn't the Pope, yeah, you'd have this other list of people: Schoenborn, maybe in retrospect. Well, that was talked Willette, about a lot going. Into yeah, well, that was talked about a lot. M- maybe in retrospect, Mueller. Mueller. Uh, no, I've never heard Mueller named as a potential. No, but I'm saying I, I'm not even talking about necessarily like guys who are very likely to be elected. I just mean big figures within the college who's you know ran big departments or had big archdioceses that were considered to be sort of tone setting guys. Well, how much do you think con- that? How much do you think, okay, so if we're not just talking about people who are papabli, because I don't think, well, that was probably, but if we're not just talking about people who are papabli, how much do you think the American triumvirate cardinals, the most active American cardinals on the global scene, to have uh, Tobin, Supich, and McElroy are tone setting? It seems to me, oh, it seems to me that, I, I'm not sure I agree with you, because I think that they could be said to be tone setting for a set. I think that the Cardinal uh, Archbishop of Mexico City is a Cardinal Rivero, Um could probably be said to be tone setting. The Cardinal Archbishop of Lima is someone who has gotten a lot of attention. And then Hollerick. I mean, I don't think you can say that Hollerick, look, Marx has become only the, um, Marx has become only the German Synod and he's blown up and he has some, even the Germans don't like Cardinal Marx. Even the Marx Germans anymore. don't like Cardinal Marx. Okay. So take Marx out of the equation. But Hollerick, I think is probably someone who, how influential is he? 
I don't know how big of a name and figure is he? How large does he loom? I think large. Um, so I, I'm not sure that I'd agree with you that there aren't any. And I would say that f even on the global scheme, Cardinal Supic is not an insignificant figure. And Cardinal McElroy never goes, is never a wallflower, right? So I would not be at all surprised if Cardinal McElroy. Uh, Cardinal Rates is the Archbishop of Mexico City. Cardinal Rivera is retired. Um, sorry, I would not be surprised at all if um, Cardinal McElroy um, were to make his presence known and just by sheer force of his... Sort of I'm sure he'll make his presence, presence known. I don't think he's going to sway a lot of votes. If his conduct on the floor of USCCB meetings is any reasonable judge of how he'll behave in a conclave, I'm the just man is a walking that. textbook. I'm not sure that he'll be received in the same way at a conclave as he is at a USCCB meeting because more of the really? cardinals... Really? You think he'll be... I think, think more cardinals will warm would be to... positive. I think there's a swath of cardinals who would be more positively disposed to receive what he has to say than are there are Americans at the USCCB meeting. Now, again, I don't think that Cardinal McElroy's sort of theology represents the whole of the Car College of Cardinals, but for me, the most interesting thing about the College of Cardinals right now is how much probably half the list is a set of unknown commodities because the Pope has made cardinals of people in right. places that are not typically cardinalatial sees. And those people, we don't simply don't know what those people think about the current pontificate or about the doctrine, the teachings of the church or about the activities of the um, Pontifical Academy for Life. I mean, we, we just, half the cardinals I think are unknown to us, but more important and what makes the conclave more interesting to me is, and maybe it's become cliche to say it at this point, but half the cardinals are unknown to each other simply by virtue of the fact that we don't really have consistories anymore or other occasions by which cardinals get together. And I don't think they have a group text or a Slack or a Discord server or something. No, probably not. In fact, I go so far as to definitely don't. If, Some, they, if they had if a Discord they had server. one, I would want to, believe me, if they had we one, know. I would really want to know about it. If they had a Discord server, we'd already be in there. Be <laughs> No, I, but I'm, I'm serious. Think this through with me. Who who would you say are the top three candidates going into the conclave right now? No, you're right that I, I don't think we could name them. Isn't that weird? Yeah. Isn't that historically aberrant? I can only speak, I can only speak to recent history, but recent history, I think it is. What do you think about the possibility? Do you think that Ike is a front runner? He's very young. He is very young. Well, he's very young for a member of the College of Cardinals. I, I don't, he's not, by which I mean he's not seventy, and he seems to be regarded. He's he's the uh, he's the Archbishop of um, Utrecht. Um, I always want to say that he's the Archbishop of Amsterdam because he's the important Cardinal of, of Holland, but the important see of Holland is Utrecht and not and not Amsterdam. So he's the um, Cardinal of Utrecht, and um, he's seems to be regarded as kind of um, both pastoral and theologically orthodox and has a seems to be regarded as someone who is willing to speak seriously on serious issues, not sort of of the German path, but able to engage with a broad swath of people. Well, say his name out loud three times, and I'm sure someone at um, someone in the Vatican press corps will <laughs> write write an immediate profile explaining why he could never be Pope. <laughs> Rates is the guy I meant from Mexico City. I feel like I should clarify that because it was Rates is the guy who was um, uh, Aguiar Rates who was appointed by Francis, who's a kind of influential cardinal archbishop of Mexico City. Okay. Okay. Um, so you yeah, don't I, think I, that the American triumvirate will have an influence in the conclave? I think I think Cardinal Tobin probably will. He's a guy who's worked in Rome before. He's he speaks the language literally and culturally um, rather more fluently than I think the other two do. I maybe you're right and I'm wrong, but you know when I've seen Cardinal McElroy take to a microphone in a room full of his peers, it's a masterclass in how to lose friends and alienate people. <laughs> and maybe I'm maybe he does it differently in Rome. I don't know. Um, my sense of Cardinal Supic is he is beloved at Vatican news, but not much beyond there. Um, and I just, that's talking to people who, you know, work in dicasteries where he's a member and, you know, when he goes to town and, you know, the, he's, uh, I, I don't see him as a, as a magnetic pole in, in the college. I could be wrong about that. But again, I, I, it's not that I don't think the, um, American Cardinals will have no, will have no sway necessarily or will get no airtime. I think Cardinal O'Malley will probably be seen as something of an elder statesman with something to say. And I think the way that he bridges uh, the Americas north and south, 
um, will probably be quite important. Uh, again, I think Cardinal Tobin probably will will people will listen to him, and I think uh, he he will be in a position to to speak in a way which will be rather better heard uh, by cardinals from other parts of the world. I whether he will care to exercise it in a serious way, I don't know, but I imagine there will be a lot of reflexive interest in what Cardinal Dolan thinks, at least at the beginning. Um, so I don't think that Americans will have no voice in the, in, in the conclave uh, necessarily, but you know, the, I don't, I don't see any, any big beasts wandering in there that, you know, you would normally expect to find. I think um, someone who's probably going to end up, I think, being listened to incredibly attentively may even be a dark horse candidate, but I think more importantly will will command a lot of attention in the immediate run up to the conclave and in the conclave itself is Cardinal Moang Bo. Mm, yeah, Car- yes, Cardinal Bo is much more influential among I think Asian cardinals than people probably give him credit for. A lot more, um, and he comes, um, if you like, with sort of proxy influence as well because he's very he's very close friends with Cardinal Zen who will obviously not be in the conclave because he's over 80. Uh, so I think someone like that, I think, sure. But I, again, I don't know to what extent he's he's someone who would be considered, you know, a possible candidate. But I mean, again, to my point, like, the, you know, everyone who, everyone in the sort of more um, closer in, in the Roman orbit, who gets too credible, seems to get knocked down. Let me tell you why I think you're underestimating Cardinal Togli and his I'm, influence. You think I'm underestimating Cardinal Togli? Yes. I don't think I'm underestimating. I mean, you've made this point that he's sort of been knocked down and, you know, he's sort of on the out because everything fell apart at Caritas and all of that. Yeah. So I've heard the same things that other people have been reporting about Cardinal Tavia for some time, only not about Caritas, about um, propaganda fidei. It's just, it's never before occurred to me that being a disastrous manager of a large organization was disqualifying. But um, wasn't part of your point that he's less influential than... It's but I, I, it's not so much these less influential. My 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 primary point is there seems to be, um, a, a hard glass ceiling for any member of the College of Cardinals right now. Like if their profile gets too high, somebody comes along and lets the air out of the balloon. And like, the Pope that, has not done anything to indicate having. Look at the end of the day, you, you can't deny it. JP two wanted Ratzinger to be the Pope. Mm-hmm. Period. You can't deny it. Ratzinger wanted Scola to be the Pope. If you pay, yep. that's less clear if you don't sort of pay attention to ecclesiastical politics. But if you pay attention to ecclesiastical politics, Ratzinger wants Scola to be the Pope. With Francis, can you say who Francis wants to be the Pope? I mean, maybe part of the thing is, does no. Francis know who Francis wants to be the Pope? And actually, this points to a sort of Francis thing where he cycles through advisors relatively quickly, right? Francis has sort of his guy for a year or two or three years, and then the guy tends to fall out of favor with Francis, and then he has another set of guys. So this is a sort well, of paradigm of the Francis papacy. It is. And this is another interesting thing I was going to say, and I think this is one of the reasons why there aren't the sort of, you know, big beasts in orbit. Uh, around the the sort of Vatican cardinals that we're used to is Francis's closest advisors aren't cardinals. Yeah, that you know in the in the early days he set up the C nine and Cardinal Maradiaga was sort of early on you know the sort of Francis whisper and then for a little while it was Cardinal Casper, um, but you know Cardinal Casper is now what what we consider to be a conservative I guess yeah, that's right. and Cardinal Maradiaga is um, is has is, some problems has some problems financial medical and and he's also aged out um and and you know the the you know for the bulk of this pontificate francis has preferred people who aren't cardinals to be his sort of inner circle and so the result of this nobody's like got the francis implied credibility of being you know uh you know the next in line in the in the in the sort of francis administration like everyone if you talk to large swaths of the vatican press pool which i don't recommend it's you know you won't get much from it um but the sort of you know the things you know ooh, francis the, who's the continuity francis candidate who's francis too who you know who's gonna be francis too it's like well, i don't think francis wants a francis too at least he's making absolutely no effort to to put one forward and yeah. i think I, I don't know if that's francis sort of genuinely not caring and it's like you know i'm not here to do legacy planning i'm here to do the best i can while i'm in the job and you know it's god's church and he'll figure out what comes next or if he just genuinely is looking around and going, no, I don't, I'm not going to endorse any of people. that people fall out of favor with him quickly. I mean, the thing, what you see about Francis is just that 
people are in and then they're out. And that means that it's hard. It might be at, at any given moment, maybe not at this moment, but one will probably emerge. At any given moment, it would be easy to say, this is a person who you might think is a sort of Francis protege or someone who the Pope really leans on. And Marx actually, I think, at a certain point would have fit into that, although only very uh, early on. I, the, 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 what I hear is that they were never that Marx used to have a sort of privileged level of access, but That's I don't think, yeah. Okay. yeah, but Francis and he never really got along. In fact, the the stories I hear is that, um, Marx was kind of a bully to the Pope. I've in the heard early that as years. well. Yeah. That's, and that's why he was on the, it's not that Francis tired of him. It's like Francis finally got his sea legs enough. He was like, you know what? You're a jerk. Get out of my office. But let me, um, let me just tell you why I think that even if I don't think he'll be elected the Pope, I think probably the most, un, the person whose influence is probably the most underappreciated at the conclave is Cardinal Togli. Um, and it's this, um, Cardinal Togli has had two va two significant Vatican jobs, right? Caritas International and Prop Fide. Caritas International means go around to different parts of the world, the, the developing world, with bags of cash and help bishops with the projects that matter very much to their people. Not in a nefarious way, not in a way that is, you know, but just the guy who shows up and helps the bishop to execute the things that he needs to execute for his own Catholic charities in the face of humanitarian disasters, whatever. The College of Cardinals right now is made up of people who don't know each other, don't know Rome, but cardinals who are from less traveled corners of the world are likely to know the guy who helped make sure that they were able to build wells or build a school or build a seminary or whatever, one. Two, there are probably more cardinals now whose dioceses or countries are prop fide places than are, are, are overseen by the propaganda fide than, I, I would venture to guess, than in any time in history. Do you think that's fair? Recent history, yeah. Recent no, I think history, you're right. yeah. There are yeah. probably more cardinals now whose dioceses fall under the jurisdiction of the propaganda fide, which is to say are formally considered mission territory right now than at any time in recent history. As a consequence of that, there's a set of cardinals who have looked to Cardinal Tagle as the person. Like when we talk about the Holy See, Ed, we talk about 11 different dicasteries, which are relevant to stuff. Clergy for, you know, to just doing ordinary business. Clergy, divine worship, um, sickle cell you name it, Dickel right? Cell. It's Dickel Cell. Yeah, thank you. D DDF, et cetera, you name it. But if you're in a place that's designated as missionary territory in the church, basically the dicastery that matters to you is Propaganda Fide. And that's the, the one that you have contact with, and that's the one that both supports your diocese you know, financially and helps to provide priests for your diocese and helps provide resources for your diocese, but also can provide any number of the kind of administrative business through which dioceses interface with Rome all in one place. It's a one-stop shop for mission dioceses. That means there's a set of cardinals in the mission territories of the world who don't really know Rome, don't really know each other, but know that Tagle is or is not the person who helped them out when they needed something from Rome. And that could mean that he has a kind of Again, I hate to reduce the conclave to mere sociology, and I don't think it's mere sociology. I think it's infused and imbued with prayer, although the Holy Spirit doesn't pick the Pope. The, whole, the thing is infused and imbued with prayer. But I do think there's a way in which Tagli has a sort of, if you will, influence base apart from Francis or his perceived closeness to Francis or his perceived relationship to Francis. People who, have, who think good or ill of Francis have an opportunity to think independently about Tagli in a relationship where he might have been helpful to them on two levels, the Caritas stuff and then the Profita stuff. I don't disagree with that. I think it's an astute observation. I um, I mean, the thing that fascinates me about all of this, though, is is sort of a one remove. I'm, I'm less interested in handicapping the field and more about what's going on with the bookies who are doing so. Like if I, th th do you see what I'm saying? Like it, it's it's interesting enough to sort of talk about well who are the likely contenders and stuff. But what I find particularly interesting is like no no front runner is emerging. Like there's there's nobody's the odds on favorite. There are no there's no strong forward field, and the reason for that seems to be that if you get too far ahead, you you get kneecapped. And I find that really weird. If I mean it's one thing for people to you know write s silly tweets and snark pieces about Cardinal Erdo because. Um, you know, he's got a, I don't know, a canon law degree. So therefore he's a conservative or something. I don't know. Um, but you know, when you see people taking shots at Cardinal Zuppi and Tagle and trying to rule them, it's like, well, now this is, this is weird. These are the people who you would, you know, who five minutes previously were, were the Francis candidate, were the continuity Francis 
candidates and now they're being treated as like well they're not they're not up to the market so it's kind of i i find that phenomenon particularly interesting to watch to paraphrase like, the great paula cole uh, where have all the cardinals gone well yeah but i but also just like what's what's the game here yeah. like is it is it is it good for clicks to you know to to sort of shoot down the, your own it's always good for clicks to do papable list of listicles who's in who's not people love to read about that kind of stuff even if you what you have to say is not especially informed um and if you don't have new lists then what you start doing is scrutinizing the others and saying why they're not good candidates etc cetera, etc cetera. and then you can always say oh it was a big conclave surprise so there's no risk the number one thing about this kind of work this kind of journalism this kind of reporting that you're talking about that kind of or editorializing that bothers you is there's no risk because you effectively you can everyone can offer their opinions on what's going to happen but then it goes into a black box where you're not going to find out for years what actually happened and therefore like it's like saying here's how the game's going to go you know write a game preview and then no one gets to watch the game and then at the end you get to say you get to frame it according to your predictions in a move that absolutely defied expectations the los angeles lakers beat the denver nuggets in game three of the western conference finals because but probably what happened is that they figured out a way to cover the Joker, blah, blah, blah. But you don't actually have to know what happened and your initial predictions don't have to be wrong because nobody got to see the game. So you get to frame the game in whatever you, you get to frame the final score in whatever way you want. I take your point, but I mean, assuming that you have no interest in, in the race beyond making hay on it before and after the fact, I think you're right. But I don't think that most of the people who sort of generate the coverage of who is who is a sufficiently Pope Francis bishop and who is a sufficiently um, close to Francis guy that he's a you know he's a he's a possible Francis too or he's an Asian Pope Francis or he's you know that sort of stuff I mean those guys strike me as being otherwise invested in the project mm, yeah that's a good point and and they're shooting their own candidates and that I like I don't I don't get it well I'm just gonna say it that you have now spent more time thinking about ca Catholic media, a subject that you try not to think about at all, than I am aware of you ever having thought before. Well, it's I because am, normally their motives and methods are pretty tra are pretty transparent. And, well, um, you know, I don't find them that hard to puzzle out. In this case, I don't get it. And, well, we'll and have to figure that out. It's the puzzle that intrigues me, JD. Yeah, I, I totally get it. If the puzzle intrigues you, I guess just stick with us and we'll keep explaining it. And um, if you like this conversation and our conversation about Nigeria and our general uh, please don't forget to um, subscribe to The Pillar because we really depend on you to do it in such a way that we don't have to focus on um, clickbaits. Although I do think we should call this episode our papal clickbait episode. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, okay, fine. So pillarcatholic.com slash subscribe and uh, please become a subscriber if you can. Uh, Ed, this week's episode of The Pillar Podcast, as you probably know, was brought to us by the Seton Home Study School. It, to find out if Seton Home Study School is right for your family, to, to watch their videos and learn more about what they do at Seton Home Study School, go to setonhome.org and um, let them know you found out about them at The Pillar. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, JD Flynn. My podcasting partner is Ed Condon, who looks like he has something he wants to say. Nope. We'll be back next week with a with more papal clickbait. <laughs>